So what we've done is that we have condensed this process of development of vaccines, but we haven't missed out any of the vital steps. What a relief. It's not often you hear a South African say that. But as the country vaccine rollout finally picks up some speed, we can now say with a clear conscience, what a relief. Now, of course, that's not to say we don't have a very long way to go. But even so, as of 5 p.m. on the 1st of September, South Africa had administered a total of 12,841,537 vaccinations across the country. So we are finally reaching numbers we can pronounce incorrectly with little to no shame. 769,800,700,000. That's 24% of the adult population of the country. Scientists work hard at getting the vaccines to be both safe and efficacious. Regulatory bodies in each country then have to double-check and triple-check that they are happy for those vaccines to be rolled out. And then finally, the public can access what is needed. But somehow in the spaces between, the public might become hesitant, asking questions like, why were the vaccines developed so quickly? Or why did my auntie feel sick the day she got the jab? So today, we are getting answers straight from the horse's mouth. We are speaking to Prof. Helen Rees. She is, among many other brilliant things, the chair of the board of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, or as it's more commonly known, SAPRA. Her and her team's job is to make absolutely certain that any health products, be they vaccines, medications, or any other treatments, are safe for us to use. So we're going to find out just how safe our vaccines are, how they manage to be developed so quickly, what kind of side effects you can expect when being vaccinated, and how ivermectin got tangled up in the COVID-19 conversation in the first place. So, welcome to the Crazy Science Report. I am your host, Tanya Faber, Senior Science Reporter for the Sunday Times and Times Live. So let me begin by saying that I received my final, my second and final, Pfizer jab this week. No, I didn't feel fantastic afterwards. To be honest, I had a bit of a fever and my muscles were sore overnight. But uncomfortable as it was, these are innocuous short-term effects. And in fact, most people don't even experience them at all. To date, not a single person has died from any of the COVID vaccines in South Africa. And I can tell you for sure, and from personal experience, that the mental relief of knowing you're over 95% protected against severe disease and death is the most liberating thing on earth. South Africans have been lucky to take the safety of their pharmaceuticals for granted. You know, when we walk into our local pharmacy chain, we order our pharmaceuticals and we take them. And we can rest assured that they've gone through an extremely rigorous vetting process. SARPRA is so careful and thorough that it has sometimes found itself coming under pressure to approve drugs more quickly. But then on the flip side, when our drugs are developed as quickly as the COVID-19 vaccines were, People say this scares them, and then the wrong message starts circulating on social media, with people asking questions like, how can I trust a vaccine that was developed so quickly? Prof. Rees says we can rely on a lot more than hope and a prayer. Take someone like me. I have absolute faith in regulatory bodies and Western medicine and all the rest of it. 
Then I read a book like Painkiller, which is about, you know, the opioid crisis in America. And I read about, you know, the way the FDA was corrupted and the way the Sackler family was promoting this very dangerous drug and making millions. And then it's very hard when anti-vaxxers come up to me and they start citing examples like that where the regulatory bodies have failed. So how do we balance that, you know, that, that trust in these amazing scientists who are doing the trials that need to be done? How do, we, how do we balance that with these horrible situations like the OxyContin crisis in America where those bodies that were meant to protect us failed? Well, I think it's one of the reasons why the regulator has to be fiercely independent. The regulator has to take into account the context, in this case, a pandemic. Um, but uh, the, And the regulator has to monitor what's happening on the ground. So, for example, we picked up that codeine cough mixtures, which you could buy from a pharmacy, were being abused. So, so the regulator all the time has to monitor context and be responsive to that and monitor safety signals. But it cannot be, uh, it cannot be in a position that people can lean on it. Um, from any direction at all, because the minute it stops using safety, quality and efficacy and the public interest as, as its, its benchmark for making decisions, you will lose public confidence, but also you'll, the regulator will make wrong decisions. And that's why it's been tough. You, you, you asked about stress. I would say SAPRA has experienced a lot of stress, the, the, the executive and the board, because of trying to say, we have to do things properly as quickly as we can, but we have to be independent. That way, whoever you are, you can be confident in the therapeutic or the vaccine. The minute you let any group lobby you and lean on you and change your decision just for that reason, then you're going to lose your role as a regulator and you're going to lose confidence in the regulator and you will affect the integrity of the health system. But despite a regulatory authority which has been nobly unyielding to external pressure and criticism, vaccine hesitancy has become a big issue in South Africa. In Gauteng, Premier David Makura says the government has conducted door-to-door -door visits, explaining how the vaccine works and busting myths about it. In the Western Cape, Health Minister Dr. Noma French Mbombo has started her Jabs for Joel campaign, which I absolutely love. She is meeting people on territory they're familiar with, like taverns and clubs, to spread the word about vaccines and have them administered there too. In Limpopo, one of our least resourced provinces, uptake has been the greatest across the country, all due to the efforts of a health department that has targeted the likes of church groups and sports club. And according to Reese, this is the best way to go about alleviating the public's vaccine concerns. She says honesty and open dialogue about the risks and rewards are absolutely crucial. But if we, if we look at uh, what the, the sort of spectrum of belief is in vaccination, the vast, the vast majority of people are willing and want to get vaccinated. That's the majority. There's another very big group who are hesitant, who are saying, I probably will. I'm not sure. I'm veering towards no, but I'm not sure. But that's the next very, very large group. And it's that group who will be swayed by the kind of messaging that is coming out uh, from an anti-vax sentiment. There's a much, much smaller group that are saying, absolutely not, I'm not having a vaccine, no and on no account. And that's probably what, uh, in some of the studies, 10% uh, of, of, of the population or less. 
And it's those people who are uncertain that we need to, to, to sort of swing to, to having more confidence. And it's those who are already saying, yeah, I'm getting a vaccine that we need to communicate with continuously as we get information. So in terms of your question, I think there are several things. One is transparency on the information. As information emerges about the safety of vaccines, um, and uh, uh, in, in not only in South Africa, but elsewhere, we need to be sharing that information honestly and accurately with people. We know that with every vaccine that we have, we need to monitor safety. We know that mild side effects are extremely common and in fact are an indication that your immune system is, is getting a bit of a stimulus. Um, they're self-limiting, they get better, and that's something most people would experience if it, it, at the least a sore arm. But we also know that there can be rare side effects, which is why we work globally with WHO and other regulators. Um, that can be extremely rare, but can be associated with the use of one vaccine and perhaps or with a different vaccine. There can be different of these kind of very rare events with different vaccines. The issue here is to explain to people, uh, to be honest about those, and but to say, what is the risk of that side effect versus the risk of COVID, uh, the risk of death with COVID, or in some instances, the risk of that particular condition occurring with COVID? And absolutely unequivocally, the risk that you have from COVID, even if you're a young person, is infinitely greater. The risk of death, the risk of severe disease, and the risk of long COVID. Um, and that's something that perhaps people have underestimated. We now think 10 to 15% of people get these long COVID symptoms, which at their worst are completely debilitating and continue. The risks of COVID disease are so much greater than a really, really rare risk of a side effect with a vaccine. So we need to get those messages out really clearly. But the other thing that we're not doing is, is capturing the, the, the hearts and minds, because it's pretty dry to say what I've just said. It's not very exciting. You know, if, if I'm an 18-year-old, I think I'd rather see a soccer player telling me to go out and get vaccinated because it's, it's really good and then I can go back and party. You know, perhaps, you know, the, the, that's the kind of thing that, that that's the kind of message that you need. So now let's talk about the question of the vaccines being developed so quickly. Rees explains that researchers did not start from scratch when producing the vaccines against SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, as they had existing research on other coronaviruses that were detected years earlier. She also explains that no approval corners were cut. The process was simply streamlined. Now, when it comes to the question of vaccines um, or therapeutics in the context of a pandemic, the same rules apply, but the context is different. The rules apply that the only products that we want to go out must be safe, of good quality, and must be efficacious. That that's the rule for reg drug regulation in and out of a pandemic. The difference is the context. So what will you accept and what sort of speed do you accept when you have the need for a vaccine and you have uh, a pandemic? And the answer is, you still need to look at safety. You need to look strongly at, man, at the manufacturing, which indicates the quality of the product. And you have to look at the data and have the data that says, does this work? Those rules still apply. In the context of vaccines, 
what's happened is that the the phases of vaccine development instead of taking years and years which normally happens you do phase one and then you wait and you do phase two and you evaluate all that data and you think about it and you work out this and that we've overlapped all of those phases and that is appropriate in the context of a pandemic we've collected Efficacy data, does the vaccine work or not? We've collected the safety data in tens of thousands of people in the context of clinical trials. And we've put in place really rigorous systems in South Africa and around the world to monitor safety as we roll out these vaccines. So what we've done is that we have condensed this process of development of vaccines but we haven't missed out any of the vital steps. And that's incredibly important for people to, to recognize. So vaccines have been tested properly and are safe. They are sometimes accompanied by mild side effects for a day or two. But the risks posed by the vaccines outstrips any of this by a thousand miles. Unfortunately, while everyone has been focusing on vaccines, research into treatment for mild to severe cases of COVID-19 has been sadly lacking. This means that once a person actually has severe COVID-19, there are very few options available to make sure they get out of hospital alive. So one of the things that I've observed in the course of the last 18 months is there's been a huge investment into vaccine development, but much less of an investment into the kind of research required to develop effective treatments for both severe disease and particularly for mild and moderate disease, you know, for people in the community don't need to go to hospital, but to stop them progressing to severe disease. And then alternative uh, therapeutics for prevention, perhaps not vaccine-based. So much less investment into those kinds of therapeutics than we've seen in, in vaccines. The result of that is that many people have indeed, and quite rightly so, um, been um, very uh, keen to try and answer some of those questions. Are there some drugs that already exist on the shelves that will stop mild disease progressing into severe disease? Are there these kinds of drugs already available that will stop people in hospital with severe disease progressing to require ventilation and perhaps dying? So people have taken drugs that we know about off the shelf, have looked at them in the laboratory and tried to do studies. But one of the problems has been that many of the studies we've seen have been poorly designed, have been very small. And that means that although there appears to be an outcome, for example, that might be favorable, when you actually do a proper critical analysis of the way the study was done, it just doesn't stand up to interrogation. So for example, if you take drug A, and you compare it to drug B that has known other side effects, but then you say, oh, but drug A is better than drug B. What you might be seeing is that drug B is a problem, not that drug A is doing anything good. Ivermectin was one such drug. So ivermectin is primarily a drug used for animals, and it is used to kill parasites. It is approved for human use in some countries for the treatment of parasitic worms, or externally as an ointment for things like lice and scabies. But note, these are parasites, not viruses. And the dosage has to be very, very carefully managed if you're going to be repurposing a drug. Prof. Rees explains here why there is just no conclusive proof at all that ivermectin is useful to kill a virus in a human being. 
So when it comes to ivermectin, early on, um, it, it was there, there was a suggestion, as for other drugs, in the laboratory that this could be a drug that's already exists, has been used for a long time to treat um, uh, tropical parasites. Can this drug uh, be used be useful in the context of COVID-19? However, some of those studies, the early studies were small, and as I say, weren't well designed, and had all sorts of different comparatives, which made it very difficult to, to really understand the data that was coming out. What really needed to be done was a very large, well-designed study. Some of those have now been designed. Unfortunately, one, of su one such study, which appeared to be very favorable, was done in Egypt, was found to be fraudulent. And that had to then be withdrawn. And that set the field back again, because it meant once again, we don't have decent data. But <clears throat> so when it comes to ivermectin, many people, because of these early signals from these small studies, were very optimistic in a clinical sense that this is going to work either for prevention or for treatment and for treatment of ambulant patients or for treatment of hospitalized patients. Unfortunately, despite looking long and hard at the data, and it's not only SAPRA that's doing this, it's the World Health Organization, it's US institutions, the FDA, it's our own um, essential medicines list committee, and it's a lot of professional bodies around the world. Unfortunately, everybody in those kinds of categories is saying the same thing, that we cannot see the data that would allow us to say that ivermectin is effective either for prevention or for treatment. The data simply isn't there. And what needs to be done are some really well-designed large studies in each of those categories to give us an answer, yes or no, once and for all. But despite the lack of proof for anti-vaxxers, ivermectin is the so-called miracle cure that makes COVID-19 vaccines unnecessary. For emergency doctors, it's an unwanted distraction that has sent calls to poison control centers skyrocketing. With people practically poisoning themselves by using ivermectin incorrectly, SARPA found it needed to take action so that some form of regulation came into the picture. We had a very serious situation in the country because people were using veterinary medicines, which are not designed for people, whose formulations are designed for in, in many instances, for example, for large mammals, cows, you know, much, much bigger animals. So you, it would be very difficult for, if you were going to give something to a human, to know exactly what's in that formulation and what the dose is. But we saw that a lot of veterinary medicines containing ivermectin were being used for humans because of this very strong belief from clin some clinicians that this was going to be beneficial. And for that reason, rather than having an uncontrolled situation with drugs of unknown formulations, some of which might not even have contained ivermectin, with illegal importation of drugs that were claiming to be ivermectin, some of which were tested to find that they have impurities, that's a safety issue. So we said instead of that, that we would give permission on what's called a Section 21. So if a clinician really wanted to give ivermectin, they could apply to the regulator and that we would allow importation of proper human formulation drug on a named patient basis and with a requirement that the, the clinicians then tell the regulator what the outcome is, and particularly around safety. That was a, a response to a safety concern. 
But the position of SAPRA continues to be that there need to be properly designed clinical trials. And at the moment, we have equipoise. We, have, we do not have the data that says that ivermectin works either for prevention or treatment. Neither can we say absolutely that it doesn't work. We simply don't have good enough research data. That's not up to the drug regulator to produce. That is up to researchers to produce. And as I said, there are now, I believe, some, some well-designed studies that as soon, well, not soon, but hopefully in the next few months, we would start to get some data that would really start to give us some more definitive answers here. Recently, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. said poison control centers had seen a five-fold increase in emergency calls from ivermectin poisoning. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration also released a warning with a tweet that read, and I love this, <laughs> they said, You are not a horse. You are not a cow. Seriously, y'all, stop it. Rees said that while it was important that huge investments continue to go into COVID-19 vaccine development, it is unfortunate there has been far less research into new treatments. In what has been an incredibly uncertain time, our reliance on science, data and facts is more important now than it has ever been before. For the Quasi Science Report, I've been your host, Tanya Faber. To access free episodes... As and when they come out, subscribe for free on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, or wherever you stream your podcasts. The Quasi Science Report releases a new episode at the beginning of each month. From myself and the rest of the team, stay safe, get vaccinated, and keep a keen eye out for the facts. <laughs>